got, we've got something now that uh, Peter just wanted to be sure that he could also turn this off just as easily as he turned it on. So that's very clever of him to make sure about that beforehand. Uh, John 10 is a familiar text, especially for a communion like this, where you're all Bible students and you love the Holy Scriptures. Um, so let us consider then uh, these first uh, uh, 18 verses of the 10th chapter of John. Uh, Jesus was speaking and had been speaking to those who had interrogated the man born blind and had interrogated his parents and so forth. And he ended the chapter, the ninth chapter, you know, with the word of judgment. He said, for judgment I've come into the world so that those who do not see may see and so that those who see might become blind. And then they foolishly said, are you saying that we're blind? See, that's foolish for them to have said. They should have said, we're blind and you've come to help the blind. And he says, no, no, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the context, you see, for what he now says, oddly enough. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Some of you know that uh, for uh, the last 40 years, uh, as of last year, uh, with one exception, I've I've taught a, a Greek course. And considering on a few of those years, I taught it at more than one institution. I guess I'm averaging still over one a year for the last 40 years. So, uh, uh, so I guess I have a sort of a pathological interest in language uh, and how it works. Uh, and those who study language, uh, people who study the sociology of language, how it functions, for instance, um, have since uh, the last 50 or 60 years talked about what they now call coded speech. Coded speech is the uh, language linguists use for people who are in a threatened or minority position in a culture. And coded speech is the speech they use often to express their disappointments 
or their aspirations and to do so in a way that they don't get in trouble for it. So they call it coded speech, you see, because it's a way of speaking that enables them to express some deep longing or deep concern, but in a way that others don't necessarily know they're doing it. Uh, An example they often use is the uh, African-American slaves in the United States before the war between the states, and that while they were working in the fields, they would sing these songs about crossing Jordan, right? Crossing the Jordan River. And their slaveholders thought, see, we've Christianized our slaves, and they're talking about going to heaven at the end of this life. They were talking about coming up to Pittsburgh and taking the Allegheny up close to Edinburgh and then hiking overland 11 miles to Lake Erie and going to Canada, right? And you see, they could sing about it in those biblical terms in a coded way. And their owners didn't know that what they were really talking about is the Underground Railroad, which, by the way, was not a railroad. It was boats, right? And you try to put a railroad on the water, and it won't float. So the Underground Railroad was boats, and many of them went right up the Allegheny. Uh, Some of them started over on the Ohio and came up from that direction, from further west, and then joined the Allegheny here at Pittsburgh and went on up to Canada from here. They call this coded speech. It's my opinion, after studying it for a number of years, that many of the figurative sayings of Jesus... His parables and extended metaphors are also coded speech, where he objects to the false and inappropriate rulers of the people of God and declares himself to be their true ruler, but he does so in such a coded way that they don't realize he's doing it. And so I think that that's what's happening here. That is to say, when we hear about the good shepherd, that almost sounds like a Christian hallmark card to my ears. Ah, a nice shepherd, cuddling and caring for his sheep, right? But there's some other stuff in here that's not so nice, isn't it? All that came before me were thieves and robbers. The thief only comes to steal and to kill and destroy. Not so nice. It's not the kind of thing you put in a Hallmark card, is it, you see? So uh, let me say, uh, I'd like to chat a little bit about the context of this particular passage and uh, its structure, just a little bit about its structure. It's just twofold. And then a couple words about his figures of speech that I think are coded figures of speech here and so forth. So the context, as I mentioned before, was the uh, man uh, born blind and Jesus healing him. And you see a big number there in your text, and it says 10, right? Now, Now you know these were put in not until the 13th century A.D. So for 13 centuries of the Christian church, over half of it to date, there were no chapter or verse divisions in the manuscripts of the Bible. Those were added later, sort of like latitude and longitude lines to help us find our way around. The Bible's a big book, right? And if you and I want to talk about it together, we need to know not just, well, it's in John somewhere, but where? And so the chapter divisions were put in to sort of give us a way of finding our way around the Bible. Some of them are very skillfully done, and others are not skillfully done. This one is not skillfully done. Most of the appropriate chapter changes in the Gospels, as you know, uh, take place when there is a change in setting, right? Either a different place, or a different time, or different characters, Right? Those are the three things that in all languages we use in narrative to indicate now we've got a new scene, as it were. Right? So they'll say, and after three days, Jesus went into Galilee and did this, that, and the other. And he met Simon, called John, this kind of a thing. So you have a change in characters and a change in location and a change in time. There's nothing between chapter 9 and 10. In the original manuscripts, there's nothing in between them at all. And uh, I would submit to you, he's continuing what he said at the end of 9. And so you you recall at the end of 9, after the healing of the man born blind, 
if Mark had been writing this in his gospel, the story would have probably stopped there. But in the fourth gospel, it, the, the, char- the chapter keeps going, doesn't it? Because after the person is healed by Jesus, they come and ask him, who did this, right? And he says, I don't know, right? And, and then they come in and, and ask him more questions and more and more, right? And then they ask his parents, do you know how this happened and who healed him? Now they're interrogating even his parents, you see, because their antipathy towards Jesus is so great that this guy that Jesus healed is now on the hot seat. And his parents are on the hot seat. And they throw their son under the bus, don't they? They say, he is of age, ask him, right? The parents aren't really very courageous. They just say, ask him, he's of age, right? So there's all this conflict going on. And so when we get to the end of chapter 9, it doesn't end with, for grace I came into the world, so that those who don't see may see. It ends with, for judgment, I came into the world. So that those who do not see may see, and so that those who see might become blind. Right? And then they, as I suggest, very foolishly heard these things and said, are we also blind? Right? Proving their blindness. Proving their blindness. Are we also blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. You see, Jesus says, I've got two categories. I've come into the world to drive a wedge. Those who do not see, I'm going to give them sight, like I did this man. And those who see, I'm going to make them blind. The Christ event doesn't leave you unchanged. It gives you sight, or it makes you blind. You grasp a hold of the Lamb of God who takes the world's sins, or you fall into your sin deeper than you were before. It does not leave you in any neutral category. He didn't give a third category somewhere in between. He's going to do one or the other. He comes bursting into our life. We either accept his gracious offer of his salvation and forgiveness, or we turn away from it and turn away the one whom to know is life eternal. So it's in this context that he starts talking about sheep and gates for the sheep and shepherds of the sheep, you see. There's nothing that changes 9 and 10. You would read right straight through in the original manuscript form of the Bible, and there'd be no break between 9 and 10. And so what I'm suggesting is the last two or three verses of 9 are the pivot verse. The first part of it talks about the previous chapter, chapter 9. I've come into the world right for judgment so that those who do not see may see. And then it pivots, and so that those who do see may become blind. And now 10 is his discussion, chapter 10 is discussion of those who say that they see, and he makes them blinder than they even were before. And the pivot is that little section at the end of chapter 9. You can see if, you can try that on like a shoe, and if it fits and it's comfortable, wear it, and if it isn't, just leave it alone, and someone else will come and preach intelligently next week, and you'll be fine. So, uh, you should be fine. So, note then that what follows this also is very judicial and judgmental. Verse 19, I stopped at 18 because some of you are losing patience, but verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to it? And others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You see the division there also? Some of them can see, and some of them can't. And so, all around 1 through 18 is the curious ending of 9, and then verses 18 and 19, both of which says, he's giving sight to some, and he's blinding others. There's two categories, but it's coded speech, and they don't even get him, right? It says they didn't understand, right? Right? So they didn't even understand that he was talking about them 
when he was talking to them. They didn't get it. And that's what it is. There was a division among them, and they didn't understand. You see, they were blind. Deaf, but blind. Senseless. Couldn't understand. So the structure of the passage is fairly straightforward. It falls into two sections. The first six verses um, are uh, Jesus employing uh, two little figures of speech about sheep and doors and these kinds of things. And then the slightly more extended one from verses 7 through 18, where he extends a, a, a fairly lengthy discussion of shepherds and sheep and so forth. And so if we look at those figures of speech, it's sort of interesting uh, things that happen here. First of all, there are two figures, aren't there? He calls himself both the door or gate on the one hand and the shepherd, right? Now, I know that when you were in eighth grade and I was in eighth grade, right? In my case, that was when Mr. Lincoln was president. Uh, uh, when, when we were in eighth grade, our teachers told us not to mix metaphors, right? And, but that's because, you see, you and I were imperfect sinners. Jesus was a perfect person and holy, and he can mix metaphors every now and then if he wants. It's just not nice to pick on him for his literary choices. So he does mix metaphors, but they're closely related, related aren't they? In the ancient world, we didn't have barbed wire fences or electric fences or anything else like this. We had gated communities, and during the daytime, when it was daylight, the shepherd would go out through the door or gate out of the city, and take his sheep out to find pasture. And they would graze all day and get the nourishment they needed. And then they would come back in in the evening and they would let the sheep back in where they now find protection. Protection from thieves and robbers and all sorts of things. And from ravenous wolves and wild beasts and mother-in-law and all these other things that are threatening to us, right? You see, they'd come inside and they were fine at at that point. And so uh, Jesus says that he's the door of the sheep, right? And if the ones he lets in, he lets into a good spot, and they find pasture, and they have life, you see. And so he's a door that shuts the wicked away from his sheep, and he opens the door for his sheep to find pasture and sustenance. So you see, almost like blind to some and sight to the others, opens the door and shuts the door. You see, he does both. When he protects the sheep by bringing them in, he also bars the wicked to keep them out. And and this is happening also. But the prevailing figure of speech overall is the repeated use of the figure of the shepherd. So the door is coded speech, I think, but the shepherd is coded speech. If you count them, and not the sort of nitpicker who counts, um, there are 22 total uses of the words shepherd and sheep in the passage, um, and uh, only a few uh, references, two references to a door. And so the much more repeated figure of speech he's using is the relation of the shepherd to sheep and not as much the relation of the door to sheep. So this is the thing that's important for us. We don't really want this uh, discussion about Jesus being the good shepherd to be coded speech to us. We want to understand it, right? We want to make sure that we get it, especially in this context. And so um, we we want to ask why he says this kind of a thing um, uh, in this particular passage. And I would suggest to you that the difficulty is not at all that he says he's a good shepherd. Yahweh had already made himself known to the Israelites as a shepherd. And David, who was Israel's shepherd, the king was called a shepherd, David said, the Lord is my roe, my shepherd. So that's well established. What's curious is all this business about thieves and robbers, right? Uh, If you talk to ten sheep farmers in a ten-mile radius of this church... They might talk a lot about uh, the food, the grasses and the grains and other kinds of things. They probably wouldn't necessarily say anything about thieves and robbers. Coyotes would get in the conversation, but not thieves and robbers, right? 
And so, why thieves and robbers? It's not natural to a context with shepherds, is it? So, that's what we have to do. How does this become coded speech to some that they don't understand, and yet uncoded speech to us, and we get what's going on? And so, note all this language of the other kinds of things. Uh, That man is a thief and a robber. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. I am the door. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that may have life and have it abundantly. Who are these thieves, you see? Who are these thieves? What does he mean by all who came before me? And why does he call them thieves? You see, that's, that's the tricky part here. We want to get right if we can. So, what did he mean by all who came before me? Did he mean all humans? Even righteous Simeon, who was awaiting the consolation of Israel, and when the baby Jesus was born, he said, Lord, let us now thy servant depart in peace. My eyes have seen the salvation of our God. Was he a thief? Was Mary a thief? Was Joseph the carpenter a thief? Not as far as we know, right? As far as we know, not all humans that came before him were thieves and robbers. And so it seems to me that isn't what's going on. Possibly it's all of the shepherds who came before me were thieves and robbers. And I would suggest that's what it is because of the pervasive use of shepherd in the Old Testament, which would have been the only literature Jesus and his hearers would would have known, they didn't have libraries. You know, they would, would have heard the Holy Scriptures read uh, in the temple and tabernacle and so forth. And later in the synagogue, some of them would have had that privilege. But these people were like uh, 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 Reverend Spurgeon. You know, they said if you had cut Charles Spurgeon, he would bleed Bibline, right? Because he knew so much Bible. Uh, and the people that hung around with Jesus, they knew Bible because it was their only book, Right? So you had a very small library if you had one at all in those days, but it was a great book that you had in it, you see. So they knew their Bibles and they knew them well. If you just look at how casually the New Testament authors throw out references to the Old Testament, right? And they knew what was going on. Think of John 3.16, which hasn't seen its context since John wrote it, but uh, what did he actually say? As As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For in this manner God loves the world, right? So he gave his only begotten son, just the way he loved covenant Israel. In the midst of their rebellion and his judgment, he provides a way to escape it, right? Now he just tosses out this reference to Numbers 21. He doesn't mention Numbers 21. He doesn't mention the verses. He just says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness with the assumption that they would know exactly what he was talking about, right? Flattering, I think, that he would uh, estimate that their biblical knowledge was that good, but that's the kind of way it is. So in the Old Testament, other than literal shepherds who are keeping of sheep, shepherds are used figuratively to refer either to God or to the Israelite rulers. So they are used of the judges, right, before they ask for a standing monarchy. They are used of the Israelite kings. They are sometimes used of uh, the the, uh, uh, prophets, but rarely as much with those, because they call others those things. So you may recall uh, with uh, Joshua, when he's about to replace Moses, uh, Moses spoke to the Lord, this is Numbers 27, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Because Moses is about to pass on and go to be with his fathers, as he says. Let him appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. You see, implicitly what he's saying is while he's alive, they have a shepherd, they have Moses. 
But he's he's about to go to his grave. And he prays that God would raise up someone else to lead them so that they would not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And so the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. You see, Joshua will become Israel's second shepherd after Moses. He will be their shepherd. And then when the judges came, which is a really fascinating period in Israel's history, they had no standing monarchy at the time. They've just recently, through Joshua, entered the land, but they've not yet disinvested the land of the people of the land. They're all there. And they're very highly civilized people with strong militaries and so forth, very well prepared. And the Israelites have no leader. And so what happens again and again is the Spirit of the Lord would fall on someone and he would go out and fight militarily. The Spirit of the Lord would fall on someone and he would slay hundreds of people with the jawbone of an ass. It would make you hesitant to pray for Holy Ghost revival, right? Because you never knew what would happen when the Holy Spirit fell on people in those days. So the judges were these people that weren't elected. They were elected by God when His Spirit came upon them. Then they went out to do war. And remember with Gideon, he had 30,000 men, and he had to reduce it down to the 300 who lapped up water like dogs, lest your hand would say, our hand has gotten us the victory. Mm-hmm. Right? So God was their victor because his spirit did it. So the same thing happens many, many times. Uh, Tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, build me a permanent house. You see, he refers to the judges as those whom I commanded to shepherd my people. And therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. David was also known as the shepherd of God's people. And that is that way. So you recall in 2 Samuel 5, they're about to have the transition from the first to the second kings. And uh, uh, all the tribes came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people, Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. King, prince, and shepherd are used interchangeably there, you see, to refer to Israelite kings. And then there's general words towards the end of Israel's history, where so many of the kings have proven to be very unfaithful people and wicked and so forth, that the uh, Ezekiel just cries out about the shepherds and how horrible they've been. So you recall in chapter 34, really a challenging chapter to read, it's disturbing. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, our shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. It's a horrible, horrible story they tell about Israel's shepherds who did not care for their flock. 
And so, why then, when he refers to these previous shepherds, does he refer to them as thieves and robbers, you see? That's then the question. I think we're on good ground in saying it's a veiled, coded reference to their rulers who were called shepherds. Uh, and now, why is it? Well, the most important under-read book in the Old Testament, the most important under-read chapter in the Old Testament, I'm not saying it's the most important chapter, but considering how rarely it's read, how important it is, is 1 Samuel 8. Because it tells you what to expect when you read the rest of it. Because it's in 1 Samuel 8 that the Israelites ask God, through the prophet Nathan, for a king. Right? And the context is, they have just, through the judges, upon whom the Holy Spirit would come, they've driven out these people of land without a king. No standing monarchy, no standing army, just 300 people lapping up water like dogs, right? And with that alone, in the Spirit of God, they disinvested the land with all their might. And of all times then say what they say, it's remarkable. One is inclined to say they were blind. Behold, they came together to Samuel. Behold, you are old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. You mean the nations that God just ran out without your having a king? You want to be like the nations whom God just dispossessed? You want to be like them? One's inclined to say they're blind, right? It's a crazy thing to do. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. That's the strongest understatement in the Old Testament. The thing displeased Samuel. He was probably pulling his prophetic hair out. It was probably driving him nuts when they said this. Uh, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. That's Uriah, to the, Uriah the Hittite, whom David sent out to run in front of the chariots. He will take your sons, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifty, some to plow, some to reap, some to make implements of war and equipment. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. That's Bathsheba, whom David will take. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers. He will take your male servants and female servants, the best of your young men and your donkeys, put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. So, uh, I think I counted seven times the Hebrew verb lakach is there. He will take. 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 Now, what do you and I call people? What's the technical term we use in a court of law for people who take things that don't belong to them? We call them thieves, robbers, right? And that's what Jesus calls them 
in John 10, right? This is his coded way of saying it, it happened exactly the way Samuel said it was going to happen. Now, the reason I say that chapter is important is because when I was a young man and was reading through the Bible, I kind of had a lot of hunger for it at one time and wanted to read and know more of it. As I read the historical books, I can remember reading along about one king or another in Israel or Judah and going, wow, that guy was a dud, right? He really didn't do anything for the people. And, uh, and plus, they worshipped at the high places. And I said, that huh, must have just been an off chapter. And I would turn over and go a little further. And then I would read the next chapter and say, well... That's two duds in a row, right? And at some point, I hit about 45 consecutive duds, right? And I was, I was surprised. Why are there so many duds, right? God's smart. Can't he give us a Bible with some good people in it, right? And then I realized I hadn't read 1 Samuel 8. If you read 1 Samuel 8, it's predicting that they will be duds. They will be thieves and robbers who will take from the people that they're supposed to care for and actually make their lives miserable and enslave them. And had I read 1 Samuel 8, I would have been just as disappointed with the rest, but not as surprised. Because I would have expected them to be exactly what God said they would be. And that's what they were. And with very few exceptions, Josiah and one or two others managed to manage the, the matter reasonably well, but most of them aren't. Most of them are pretty bad. So the people of God on earth had many shepherds before Jesus. And with very few exceptions, they were thieves and robbers. That they used the power of their office to exploit their people. Think about David. How did you get Bathsheba to come to the castle anyway? You're the king, right? Right? You can get anything you want. Who's this woman over here to resist the king if he invites you to his home? You've got to go, right? How could you get Uriah the Hittite on the front lines if you weren't the king and you could appoint military people to their service, right? It was an utter abuse of his office, you see. He used his office to ingratiate himself and to impoverish his people. He was a horrible shepherd, and almost all of them in Israel's history were horrible shepherds. And First uh, Samuel eight says, Samuel eight tells us we should expect it. That should be the case. And then by the end of their history, Ezekiel just cries out. They didn't heal the sick. They didn't comfort the despairing. They didn't seek the lost. They didn't bind up those who were ill. Right? They just didn't care for their sheep. That's what they were. And it's true. That's the way they were. And so Jesus in John 10 is basically taking Israel back through her history. and says, all of the so-called shepherds who came before me without exception were thieves and robbers. They took and they took and they took and they took. We even call our politicians today crooks. Right? I guess the process didn't end in covenant Israel, did it? Right? Right? We still call our politicians crooks. Right? Because they're crooked, and they use their office to enrich themselves at our expense. And so the, it's not just a prophetic truth of Israel, it's probably true of other rulers as well. Their duds were not worse than other people's duds. Um, the history of duds is the history of, of politics. We remember Lord Acton saying that, right? He was, you know, in a discussion uh, with another uh, Reformation scholar. Lord Acton was Catholic. Bishop Creighton was Protestant. And when they wrote their history of the Reformation or the disruption, uh, Creighton was actually pretty easy on the Pope. Creighton, the Protestant, kind of let Leo X off. And uh, so they had a correspondence afterwards, and Acton says, you know, the Pope could have agreed with Luther 
on the matter of indulgences because there was nothing in tradition or in Scripture to justify the practice. He could have agreed with Friar Martin and preserved both the unity of the church and its teaching authority. The Catholic was defending Luther and the Protestant was defending the Pope in that correspondence. And it's in that context that Creighton says, well, we have to be, as historians, we owe it to create respect for great people when we write our histories. And in that context, Acton said, no, right? Because remember, the Pope was not only the most powerful man in the church, he was the most powerful man in the state. He had been employing queens and kings across Europe for eight centuries by now. He was the most powerful human who ever lived. The office of Pope was at that point, right? And in this context, you see, uh, Acton says to Creighton, no, no, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Almost all great men were bad men. Almost all great men were bad men, right? So he was talking about the shepherd of the, the whole Roman Catholic Church and of Western civilization. And the notion you should go easy on them when you write history is this, doesn't understand what happens to people who get in power. Many of them were not corrupt before they got in power, and when they got in power, it corrupted them. It tends to do that. And so we do not protect them from the scathing historical glance. We look at them carefully and, and are careful to note them. So uh, this tendency in Israel has continued in many circumstances since, in, uh, since then. But the contrast to this horrible history right, is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He's just the opposite of all the ones who came before him. He strengthened the weak and grieving as he did Mary and Martha, who were mourning over their brother, even before he raised Lazarus. He wept with them. He strengthened those who were grieving. He healed the sick, such as the man born blind, in this previous chapter 9. He raised the dead. The next chapter is the raising of Lazarus. He bound up the injured, such as the lame man, and helped him with his mat as he walked on his way. He brought back strays, such as Peter, after Peter denied him, and he brought him back into the church's fold. He came to seek and to save what is lost. He was neither forceful nor harsh. He was meek and he was lowly. And when he had done all this, he laid down his life for his sheep because he was a good shepherd. He takes only two things from you and from me, our mortality and our sin, both its guilt and its power. He takes our sin from us, and he takes our mortality from us. He doesn't take anything else. He gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives, because he's a good shepherd. And he lays down his life for the sheep, instead of using them to aggrandize himself. Through his intercessions and through his church, he continues to shepherd his flock, even today. Seated at the right hand of God, he ever lives to make intercession for us. He still now intercedes for his people and cares for them. And his watchful eye never sleeps as he watches over our lives and provides for us what we need. Um, Of what other ruler in the entire history of politics could this be said? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's just the exact opposite of 1 Samuel 8 and everything else. The greatest shepherd, the great shepherd, the good shepherd. Killed and destroyed their flocks. He died for his flocks and now ever lives to intercede for us.
So let me just suggest a couple medicine words about what to do with this. I do think this uh, chapter helps us to read the historical books of the Bible. If you remind yourself, put a bookmark in there or something else. Or if your Bible has a bookmark, put, put it out right now. Find a way of relating John 10 back to 1 Samuel 8, and you'll read the Bible very differently. Instead of being surprised and disappointed when the rulers aggrandize themselves, you'll say, well, that's what God told us would happen. That's what we should expect. We should have never expected other than that. We were looking for heroes in a book that only has one. And that is the eternal Son of God who incarnated in Jesus of Nazareth. And every page of this Bible says, this book is about this hero and this shepherd. And if we're looking for another hero and another shepherd, we're not going to find it because this book is not about them. It's about the good shepherd. And we are looking in the wrong place to find the wrong thing. What we find is the contrast between these other shepherds and the good shepherd. That's the story of the Holy Scriptures. And so if we read the historical books correctly... We will read them and say, yep, it's just like God said. Right? They've done exactly what he said, and we won't be as surprised when they turn out to be, as I inelegantly put it, duds, because they were. And it might also help us understand how we should regard rulers. Um, You and I are somewhat suspicious of rulers, partly because we're rebellious people by nature. We don't like being ruled. Sometimes we don't even like God's rule, you know. Um, But partly because many of them have been, as Acton said, corrupted by their power. Some of us have even known some people who, when they first went into office, were pretty good people. And after they served a term or two, they had moral COVID, right? It had ruined them. Uh, Very few people can get in there and serve a long time and come out as decent people. Acton was right. It tends to corrupt them. But there is one ruler whose reign we may heartily embrace, right? To whose will we may yield grateful obedience, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Christ's warnings are never intended to impoverish you. They are always designed to enrich you. His commands are never intended to harm you, but to prevent you from injuring yourself or others. His shepherd's staff nudges you away from danger and towards nourishment and life. That's what he does. So submit to this gentle, self-sacrificing shepherd and submit to his uh, loving rule and you will go in, and you will go out, and you will find pasture uh, both now and forever. Let us pray. We thank your kind Heavenly Father that you did not spare your Son, but gave him up for us all. And we rejoice that when we become cynical at looking at other shepherds and uh, their failure to care for their flocks, what a delight and what a contrast it is to think of how your Son laid down his very life for us so that we, by his poverty, are genuinely and truly rich. Help us to love him fervently, albeit imperfectly in this life, and to cherish our time with him throughout all eternity as we are gathered with one another before our great shepherd for all time. We ask in his name. Amen.